Well, welcome. What a great morning of worship. So good to see uh, people in both our summit and our celebration service know that uh, people are streaming us from home and on the road and watching our television broadcast. And I'm glad we can gather together around God's word and study and learn and celebrate his good grace. Hey, this Christmas season, I believe, will be uh, perhaps our greatest Christmas. Uh, I say that every year, at least to myself. Uh, I want in my family, I want every Christmas to be a greater celebration of the incarnation of Christ than the year before. And our church wants to help you and your family have the same kind of commitment. Uh, So beginning next week, although we really gave you a preview today, but beginning next week, it's all Christmas all the time. And so Sunday, the first Sunday of December, uh, we'll start our uh, worship time in the morning uh, with our come before winter focus. And some of you will remember that, some of you won't, but just be here, uh, be, a, be a special time. And then we'll come back next Sunday afternoon and there are two time options. I think they're three and five. You would think the preacher would know that, uh, but do whatever the bulletin says. But come back, we're gonna have a fantastic Christmas celebration uh, Sunday afternoon next week. And then the next week and the next week, we've got a great Christmas Eve planned, two services. You'll see the times again in your worship bulletin. Uh, And then on Christmas morning, Uh, We'll talk about that more in the days to come, but we'll have a special service here and it'll be a, it'll be a good day. May Christ be honored in our families, in our lives, and in our church this Christmas season. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, Uh, same place we focused last week, familiar story, the story of David and Goliath. If you don't know that story, I will recap it very briefly. Uh, The Philistines and the Israelites uh, were uh, waging war against each other. And there were periods of time in history when the Philistines were the greater military uh, force and that there were times when the Philistines had the stronger force. Uh, At this time, they perhaps were evenly matched, but the Philistines, we believe, were likely the more superior force uh, if for no other reason that they had a giant of a man named Goliath. And so we come to 1 Samuel 17, and these two militaries, these two armies are arrayed against one another, one on the top of one hill, one on the top of the other. This would have been between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. The Philistines were gradually moving west, and that was a terrible problem for the Israelites. And so this man, Goliath, this giant of a man, would come out every day, twice a day, Uh, When we come to 1 Samuel 17, he's now done it for six weeks. And this man, this giant of a man named Goliath would challenge the armies of the living God. And he would say, you send a man out to battle me. And if your man beats me, we will serve you. But if I defeat the one you send out, then you will serve us. And he was challenging them to a proxy battle. Let's let one man battle one man, and the victor is the victor. And certainly, 
Uh, Goliath, nine feet, nine inches tall, uh, was a man that nobody could defeat. Well, as the story goes, and it's a real historical account, a man by the name of David shows up. David was not a soldier. He was a shepherd, but he had been sent by his father to check on his brothers who were soldiers. David arrives. Uh, He's criticized for his involvement, and he's ridiculed a little bit, but he witnesses Uh, the giant come out and defy the armies of the living God. And long story short, he goes to the king, King Saul, and he says, don't be discouraged. David, your servant, me, I will go out and fight the giant. And you know the story from there. Uh, David picks up five stones and he puts them in a, in a bag And he marches onto the battlefield. Goliath is there in all of his armor and with his armor bearer. And David takes one of those stones, puts it in a sling, and slings it to Goliath. If you're with me in 1 Samuel 17, look at verse 50. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. Now, we're going to read more of this as we go through the message, but I want to remind you of something I, I told you last week. There are really two ways to find application to this story, and both ways uh, have some value, and both ways have scriptural support. One way is to see ourselves as David, and that's what we did last week. We looked at this battle through the eyes of David, and we asked, how did David defeat Goliath? And so what can we learn from this about how we can trust God to defeat the obstacles and the difficulties in our lives? So we could see ourselves as David. But there's another way to look at this. We could see ourselves not as David, but as the hapless, hopeless soldiers that were quaking in fear when Goliath would come and confront them. And we could see David as a representative, not of us, but of Christ. And that's a a way of applying this passage that I think is even more faithful to the true meaning of the scripture. And that's what I want us to look at today. We have saved the best for last, I promise you. This scripture passage is going to knock your socks off with encouragement. And even though we're very, very familiar with the story, you are, I am, you probably know way more about it than I do, I think we're going to be surprised at a couple of things here, or at least if not surprised, reminded of a couple of things that will just make us stand amazed at the grace of God. So uh, I want to cover some preliminary issues before we get into that. Because last week, if you were here, you know I skipped most of the message because we ran out of time, and that's poor planning on my part. But let me hit some highlights that that I think are important before we get to the meat of the matter. Uh, Three preliminary observations, questions and answers. Number one, who are the real giants? Uh, Now, it's obvious here that the giant is Goliath, and we read last week a lengthy description of Goliath, and we talked about his uh, prowess and his strength and his uh, ability to fight and to win. Uh, But there are some other giants in this passage that you might not have noticed. 
And I think sometimes these other giants can be the greater giants, the giants that we face. Number one, critics. Uh, If you look at verse 28, and all these verses will be in 1 Samuel 17, if you look at verse 28, you see that David uh, experienced some criticism. It says, David's oldest brother, Eliab, listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with him. Why did you come down here, he asked. Why did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? He's ridiculing David. I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. So there would have been criticism and discouragement as soon as David arrived on the scene. Now, if you've ever been criticized, you know what could have happened here. God had sent David there to fight Goliath. That's the story. But how could this have gone differently? David could have fought Eliab, Eliab, uh, whatever his name is. I'm used to people mispronouncing names, so uh, I'll, I'll say it 14 different ways, I'm sure, before the message is over. David could very easily have fought a battle with his brother. And when I read this story That strikes me because I believe there have been times in my life when God has wanted me to focus on a mission, but somebody has criticized me and I have turned away from the mission and I have fought with my brother. Okay. Giant number one that David faced was criticism. Giant number two that David faced was faithlessness, faithlessness. Um, if you look at verse 33, it says, Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was young. David has just, has just said that he can fight him because God will give him victory. And Saul, the king of the Israelites, the one who should have had more faith than anyone. And the one really who should have been out fighting Goliath says, there's no way that's going to happen. So Saul just didn't have faith in God. He didn't have enough trust that God could do this. Now, why was that a giant for David? Well, when people around us say it can't be done, when people say it's too hard, when people say God won't come through, when people say it's foolish to pray about that, that often can discourage us from moving forward. And we let the faithlessness of other people infect our own faith, diminish our own faith. And had David done that here, he would have never fought the giant. The third giant, very quickly, distractions of the unfaithful. So if you look at verse 32, David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him. Your servant will go out and fight this Philistine. Now, how... How is there an obstacle for David there? David knew that this was not first his problem, right? Who should have fought the giant? Saul, number one, he's the king. He's the mighty warrior king of Israel. He should have gone out day one and fought the giant. But if Saul wasn't going to go, who should have gone? Well, there's a whole army here. There's this Israelite army. All these people should have gone. Who was last on the list of people that should have been expected to go out and fight Goliath? The little shepherd boy, 
the little shepherd boy, the cute shepherd boy. We see that the Bible in a couple of different places calls him handsome, uh, which is not meant as a compliment uh, any more than calling a warrior today a cute little man would be a compliment. So David saw all of these people who failed to be obedient. And I'm sure the temptation existed. Well, if they're not going to do it, then I'm not going to do it. See, sometimes we let the spiritual immaturity, sometimes we allow the disobedience of others Sometimes we allow the fact that others won't sacrifice, that others won't to do it the right way, become an excuse for us to not do it the right way, to be disobedient, to be less than faithful. I think those were great giants that David faced even before he faced Goliath. Now, the next preliminary question, what should be our goal in everything we do? Well, what was was David's goal? And it's interesting, you can read verse 46 and 47 as David goes out to fight this giant. I'll read just 47. David says, this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will hand you over to us. What was the purpose of David going out there to start with? It wasn't primarily to defeat uh, the giant Goliath, the, the, the primary purpose was just to bring army, bring honor, I should say, to the Lord. He said, when we finish this battle, people are going to say, the God of the Israelites is a great God. That's what's going to happen. That was David's goal. That was David's heart. And it should be our heart in all that we do. And then the final preliminary question here is, uh, what was the winning attitude You know, attitude is one of the most important things to determine how we serve the Lord and how we serve our wives, how we uh, bless our children. Attitude is so important. Uh, But let me contrast the attitude of the soldiers and David. So if you look at verse 11, and we're skipping all over this chapter, I know. But look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage. (coughs) Pardon me. They lost their courage, and they were terrified. But what about David? Verse 48 says, when the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David was eager to serve. David was eager to sacrifice, to take a risk, and to honor the Lord. And that made the difference. Well, Those are the preliminaries because, as we said, we've saved the best for last. I believe more than anything, this is a story about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, to set this up, I want to share with you the greatest, in my opinion, the greatest gospel verse in all of the Bible. Uh, John 3.16 is what comes to mind. I know, a great verse, of course. But I think the greatest gospel verse is Romans 6.23. And we can show that verse to you on the screen. And this is a verse that I, uh, I quote often. Uh, this is, well, I think the most beautiful gospel verse, the most beautiful verse in all of the Bible. Because just in these few words, we have the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look at it. 
For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, since that's the gospel, the good news of how a person can be right with God, let's use that gospel verse as an outline to look at the story, the historical account of David and Goliath. So we're going to focus on David, Goliath, and the gospel, but we'll use this Romans 6.23 as our outline. So let's do that. Number one, the wages of sin is death. That's how this verse begins, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? Well, it tells us that because all of us have sinned and because all of us are sinners, then all of us deserve death. Our sinfulness and our sin mean that there is no hope for any of us to ever escape death. The wages, that's what you deserve, that's what you have earned. The wages of sin is death. It doesn't say the wages of a thousand sins is death. It doesn't say the wages of some really, really bad sins is death. It doesn't say the wages of future sins is death. It says the wages of sin, any sin, our sinfulness, the wages of sin is death. That's hopeless. That's hopeless. There's nothing we can do, by the way, to overcome that. Even if you said today, I will never sin again, you would fail at that. But even if that were your commitment... I will never sin again. It is still true of you and of me that we deserve death because we've already sinned. It's already true of me. Uh, If I go to the courtroom and say, I'm not going to murder any more people, okay? Well, that doesn't get you off. You're guilty of what you're guilty of. The wages of sin is death. Now, let's look at the situation with the Israelites. The Philistines at this point in history... Uh, had the advantage over the Israelites. They had a technological advantage. They had weapons, we believe, at this point that the Israelites didn't have. Uh, They were numerically uh, superior at this point. They were geographically superior as they were moving west. Uh, They were historically superior because they had won recent battles. And they had Goliath. No one could defeat Goliath. And we see this in the fact that Goliath has now come out 80 times. In 40 days, he's come out 80 times and he has taunted the people. Now think about that. Somebody gets in your face 80 times and you haven't responded. That's a testimony of your understanding of your inferiority, that you can't win the battle. No one had the courage No one of all the soldiers, including the king, no one had the motivation, no one had the strength to defeat Goliath. I'll read it again, verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost courage and were terrified. Now that's a picture of me and of you. You see, in this story, we we don't fit primarily as David We like to imagine that we're the star of the show and we're the savior of the world, but we're not. What we fit in this story are these hapless and these helpless and these defeated soldiers. 
And the New Testament tells us that. Let me read some more verses from Romans. This time, chapter 3, verse 10 says, There is no one righteous, no one who is right with God righteous. Not even one, it says. Uh, Think about the very best person you've ever known. Uh, What if there's a person a thousand times better than that person? Not even that person is righteous. The next verse says, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Even when it seems as though somebody's seeking God, it's, it's out of their selfish motives that it appears that they're seeking God. The next verse says, all have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. We are like the hopeless, helpless soldiers. We are defeated. The wages of sin is death. There is no hope. We're the soldiers. Goliath represents sin and death, the unbeatable foe. He stands for our hopelessness, our hopelessness. The world tells us, the world tells us that if we could just have the right education, the right medicine, the right therapy, the right rehabilitation, the right resolve, the right government, uh, the right parenting, if we could just do it the right way, then we could solve problems. We could solve the problem of sin. We could raise noble, righteous, strong, good people. But that, my friend, is the greatest lie of Satan And that's the lie that keeps people from the grace and the mercy of God. We think of the world as pessimistic. But I think most of the world is optimistic in this way. They think in the the end, they will muster enough goodness, enough something to be accepted by the Lord. And they won't. It's a lie of Satan. Listen, in this story, Israel did not need a new strategy. They didn't need a new weapon. They didn't need another day. They were facing a hopeless situation because there was an enemy they could not defeat. And the same is true for me and you. The wages of sin is death. But the next part of the verse The gift of God is eternal life. So the verse says the wages of sin is death, but, but the gift of God is eternal life. That tells us that while the situation is hopeless, at least if we're left to our own devices, God has a plan. God has hope. God has a way. And his plan includes a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. Now let's, let's just think about the word gift. That's an easy word to just go back go by very quickly, but it's an important word. What makes something a gift? If you go to, where could you go today? You go to Walmart today and you buy yourself something, whatever at Walmart you want. You buy yourself something. You take it home, you wrap it up with a bow on it. And you count to 10 And then you rip the paper off. Wow! Now, is that a gift? No, it might be a treat. But why is it not a gift? 
because you paid for it, right? A gift is something you don't pay for. You can't give yourself a gift because you paid for that gift. It's, it's yours. A gift is something you don't pay for. So let's go back to the verse. The wages of sin is death, but the gift, the gift, the gift. Who pays for this gift? Not you, not me, because it's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. Now let's pivot back to the story of uh, David, Goliath, and the gospel. I love this story. God had made a promise to the Israelites. And they would have known this. They would have been very familiar with this promise. We find it in the Bible in Exodus 33, verses 1 and 2. And I'll read that to you. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go up from here, you and the people that you brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring, and I will send an angel ahead of you, and will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And that includes the Philistines, by the way. They would be Canaanites. So here's what we know, and here's what they would have known. God has already promised to defeat the Philistines. God has already promised them the gift of the promised land with all the enemies gone. Now, there are two parts to this gift that God has promised. Part number one, God said you will be victorious. You will have the promised land. That's the gift. But then the other part is what makes it a gift. God said in Exodus 33, 2 that we just read, that God would win the victory for them. So God was going to give them something, and God was going to pay for it. God was going to do this. So God had promised them the gift of the promised land. God had promised that he would would provide it, and he would win the victory. Now let's circle back to Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, But the gift of God is eternal life. What is the gift that God promises to us? Eternal life. Eternal life. Who pays for the gift? Well, just wait there. That's the next point. Why is eternal life the perfect gift? Christmas is coming up. Everybody wants to get people the perfect gift, something that they need. Not something that they really, really need. I've learned that that's not a perfect gift. (laughs) But something that they sort of need. Uh, Why is eternal life the perfect gift for us? Because the wages of sin is death. That's the one thing I need. When it says the wages of sin is death, it's not talking about death in a memorial service. It's talking about eternal death, ultimately in a place called hell. That's where I'm headed. It's what I deserve. Wages of sin is death. The gift is exactly what I need. Eternal life. So who pays for this eternal life? Since it's a gift, I don't pay for it. Who pays for it? Well, let's go to the next point. God's gift is through Christ Jesus. So we go back to our verse. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus or through Christ Jesus. The gift of eternal life is in and through Christ. 
Now back to Goliath, okay? David, Goliath, and the gospel. Now, as I've said multiple times, the usual way we picture this story is we're David, and the story is about how we defeat our obstacles and giants. But a better and a more faithful way is to look at it differently. We need to remember that the entire Bible is about Jesus, right? From the very beginning to the very end, it is a book about Jesus. And this story is no is no exception. So who are we in this story? As I've already said, we are the hapless, helpless soldiers. Who is David in this story? Well, let me give you three quick things. Number one, David is the unexpected and the unlikely savior. Nobody expected David to show up. When Goliath would come out, nobody said, oh, I wonder where David is. And when David did show up, he was, it was very unlikely. Look at David. Look at that cute little boy. David is a picture of Jesus because Jesus is the unexpected and unlikely Savior. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 6, 6, 7, 8, says that Jesus is God. But Jesus did not see his status as God as a way to benefit himself. But he saw his status as God as a way to benefit us. And he came as a person, a baby in a manger. And he lived and died as a criminal on the cross to pay for our sin. That is unexpected and unlikely. And you will never truly honor and worship God until you realize just how unexpected it is that the God of the universe would be born in a feeding trough and live a a sinless life and die as a thief on the cross for us. Amazing. The second answer to the question, who is David? David is the only one who truly believed and trusted in the Father's promise. Saw all these soldiers, they didn't really believe. They didn't really trust. If they did, they would have gone. And then the third thing, David fought a representative battle. And and I'll tell you, church, I had not seen this um, uh, until this week. I was uh, reading and reading and rereading the passage and... uh, I think this is just amazing. What was the arrangement between David and Goliath? Do you remember? Goliath is the one that actually proposed the arrangement. If you look back, chapter 17, verse 9. Goliath said, if he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Goliath said, if I beat your champion then we win the whole war. But if you beat me, Goliath said, that'll serve as the victory for every Israelite soldier. David's victory substituted for the victory of all of those hopeless and helpless soldiers. Now, let's go back to Romans 6.23. 
The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. How? In Christ Jesus. How did Christ Jesus provide this gift? Jesus died on the cross, listen, as a substitute. See, it was going to be all of us versus death. And all of us were going to lose. But Jesus said, I will go as their representative and I will battle death. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ says that Jesus won. So guess what? We won. We won. Christ is our representative, both in the sinless life he lived and in the substitutionary death he died. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin. Do you know who the one is who had no sin? Jesus. God made Jesus to be sin. Can you imagine that? Jesus is the son of God, sinless. God made him to be sin. Why? So that in him, well, I left out two words that are important. God made him to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus went out and faced Goliath. And his victory is my victory. Suppose, suppose you were one of those soldiers that never fought Goliath, that had watched Goliath come out 80 times in a row. Uh, but David fights and wins the battle. So now it's a year later and you're traveling some other part of the world, maybe part of the area. And somebody recognizes you as an Israelite soldier. Maybe you're still wearing the garb and you're on some official mission. And they say, oh, you're an Israelite soldier. I heard that you all, y'all, if it had been southern uh, Israel, I heard that y'all defeated the giant Goliath. What would you say? Well, we did, but only because David defeated Goliath. We, did we defeat Goliath? Yes, but, but we defeated because really one man defeated Goliath. Really because just one man. I'm victorious over Goliath because someone fought in my place. And his name was David. Now, let me ask you a similar question. Suppose you were to die today and you were to stand before God and he were to say these things to you. You're dead. You're standing before God. He says, behind me is heaven and all eternal life. But no one who has ever sinned can go there or partake of eternal life. Heaven is only for those who conquered sin from the beginning, lived a perfect life, no exceptions allowed. So, why should I let you into heaven? 
what would you say? There's only one satisfactory answer. You would say the same thing that Israelite soldier would say. I've won the battle over sin because someone fought it for me. And his name is Jesus. He lived a perfect and a sinless life for me. And he died for me. That's why I should go to heaven. That's why I should go. Now, the last point quickly. Jesus is the Lord. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, now, there's a question here uh, that if you're you know, biblically astute, you will recognize um, what is seemingly a contradiction. If Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for all sin, if Jesus stood before the Goliath of sin and death for all of us, and he did, by the way, 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for those of the whole world. So if Jesus died for all of our sins, then why did Jesus say, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to eternal life and few find it? Why did Jesus say, some will cry out to me, Lord, Lord, but I will not have known who they were and I will cast them away. If Jesus has died for the whole world, then why is the whole world not victorious, right with God, the righteousness of God? Well, we go back to Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, what does that mean? That last word, that's the key to everything. Lord, what does that mean? Well, it means two things. It means, number one, you trust in Christ alone. As long as you think you're, you're saving yourself, that, that, that you've got life about half figured out and you just need a second chance and you just need a little help, then you're trusting in you. And the truth is you are a sinner and you deserve death and hell. And so if you're trusting in anything, anything but Christ, you can never be saved. So for Christ to be our Lord means first of all, I trust 100% in what Christ has done. There is nothing good in your pastor. There is nothing noble in your pastor. There is nothing worth anything of righteousness except the Lord. We have to trust the Lord alone. Now the second part of what it means to be Lord, for him to be the Lord, is for us to surrender completely. So to be Lord means we trust fully and it means we surrender completely. Does it mean we won't mess up and sin and fail and 
The character of Christ will be formed in us over a lifetime. But it means that we surrender. We surrender our desires. We surrender our lust. We surrender. We surrender our lives. He is our Lord. I'll tell you a little bit of my story. And uh, you've heard my story, my salvation story, if you've been here for very long. Uh, But perhaps this is a part that I I don't tell as often. Uh, When I was a seventh grader, uh, I prayed to receive Christ. The way in which it worked is um, my high school was grades 7 through 12. And every year, uh, a local church would bring an evangelist to the public high school. Can you imagine? You could never do this today. But an evangelist would come in, would speak every day for a week. And uh, we all went. I don't think we had a choice, but anything to get out of class, right? And so we'd go and we'd listen to this evangelist all week. And you know what would happen at the end of the week? Every single one of us prayed to receive Christ. I mean, he was a great speaker and it was emotional and we were scared. And, and so I prayed to receive Christ in the seventh grade. And then in the eighth grade, I prayed to receive Christ again. And then in the ninth grade, I prayed to receive Christ again. In the 10th grade, in the 11th grade, um, all to no avail, by the way, there were no changes. There was no real surrender I'm not suggesting that the evangelist didn't do a good job or it wasn't a good thing for that church to do. I just, uh, but I can just tell you, it was, it was just an, an emotional 15 minutes for me once a year. But near the end of my junior year of high school, this, uh, this girl asked me to a youth retreat. And I didn't even know what a youth retreat was, to be honest. Uh, but I was interested in going anywhere this girl wanted me to go. <laughs> So I went, to, um, I went to this youth retreat, um, lost the girl, by the way, uh, <laughs> well, another story, but uh, in this youth retreat, for the first time, I understood the gospel. I'm sure it had been explained well to me before, uh, the problem, I imagine, was not with the communicator, it was the it was with the communicatee. But for the first time in my life, I understood I was hopeless. That I wasn't going to wake up one day and be a better person and turn over a new leaf. And I wasn't going to just resolve to be a godly man. It wasn't in me. It wasn't in me, and it wouldn't matter if it were because I had sinned so gravely. I had sinned. It didn't even matter that it was gravely. I had sinned. So for the first time in my life, I, uh, I knew I was hopeless. And so I, uh, I walked forward. There were a ton of kids at this uh, retreat, probably a hundred, I don't know, maybe 50. There were a lot, seemed like a lot back then. And, and uh, they ran out of counselors. So many people went forward. And so they got a lady who was there to cook for us, uh, Patsy Stokes. And they asked her to come and, and share the gospel with me again. You know, you go up front and they share the gospel. And I don't know who was more nervous, me or Patsy. And she was like, I'm just here to, you know, pour the cereal in the morning. I, but uh, we're going to do the best we can. And uh, elderly lady, and she shared the gospel with me, helped me understand that not only was I hopeless, 
but that there was a gift that had already been paid for. But I couldn't have it unless I fully trusted that that gift was enough and that I would surrender my life to him. There was a lot to surrender. But I did. I didn't know what the future would hold, and I wasn't sure I was not a very good promise keeper when I surrendered my life. And from that day forward, the Lord has radically changed me. There's a lot of changing still to go, but the Lord changed me. The Lord changed me. Um, that, um, that lady, Patsy Stokes, uh, she, uh, she prayed for me every day after that. I was probably the only teenager whose name she actually knew, but she prayed for me every day and she'd tell me, I go off to college, uh, God calls me in the ministry, I come back to, my, to that church, I joined that church after I was saved and was baptized there, and go off to college, and I come back, I recognize that God has called me in the ministry, and, and I share with that church, and little Miss Patsy Stokes comes up and she says that, uh, I've been praying that this would happen every t- ever since you, you prayed to receive Christ, and uh, she had bone cancer, she was dying, and uh, her family, by the way, was not very happy with this. Um, I probably shouldn't say that, but, but she decided uh, that, the, that God had allowed her to live those last three years of her life for one purpose, and that was to pray me into the kingdom and into the ministry. And so she spent, uh, I don't know, her last 30 days uh, needle-pointing me a... Um, a um, ordination certificate. Uh, terrible pain. Uh, her family said, you got to stop. You got to stop. But she said, I can't die until I finish it. And she did. And she finished it and she died. And uh, still, I've still got it. Um, the point of all of that, though, is I had had a lot of religious experiences. But it wasn't until I really understood my hopelessness, until I understood that what Jesus did was enough, and that I surrendered, that God saved me and changed me. So we're going to wrap this up in just a moment. And if you have never understood before, but you do today, your hopelessness, the substitute battle that Jesus fought and won, and you're ready to surrender. I want you to tell the Lord that. There aren't any magic words. Just tell the Lord that. Lord, I'm a sinner through and through, and I realize today it's hopeless for me, apart from what Jesus has done, and I think that's enough. And I surrender my life. And I don't even know what that's going to mean, but I'm not holding anything back. I surrender my life. The Bible says that at that moment, God adopts us into his family forever and ever and ever. We're a child of God. You can do that right now. Right now, even as we're talking. And if you do, when the service is over, I want you to tell us. There'll be people down in front in both services, uh, ministers, Uh, We'll wait after the service. We'll be out in the Welcome Center as well. None of us will leave quickly today. You let us know, today I surrendered. 
Hey, can I show you one more thing? I know we're over on time, but I, uh, uh, you'd be disappointed in me if I got you out on time. Uh, so uh, what happened after David defeated Goliath? You know what happened next? Well, if you go to the next chapter, verse 6 of chapter 18, I promise I'll be quick. But that verse says, as the troops were coming back, when David was returning from killing the Philistine, Goliath, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul, singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy and three-stringed instruments. They were celebrating. But notice this. They were celebrating a victory that they hadn't earned. None of those people with the tambourines had done anything. None of those people had, had laid one finger on Goliath. None of those fi- people had con- contributed anything to the victory. Why are all those people celebrating? Because the victory was on their behalf. Was it okay that they were celebrating somebody else's victory? Absolutely. Those people knew what it would have looked like had the Philistines won. Those those women knew what it would have meant had they been slaves to the Philistines. They they knew what an unexpected and and shocking savior that David was. So they celebrated the victory of a man on the battlefield on their behalf. And listen church That's what the Christian life is about, right? That we celebrate that somebody won a victory for us. Head bowed, eyes closed. Father, we do celebrate. We do celebrate that Christ has marched out on that field and faced that giant of sin and death. He's defeated it for us. We pray. We pray to you with such thankful hearts. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together, both services. There will be people here in the front who can help you.